Thank you so much. I feel, I feel like, um, I kind of feel like I'm at my bar mitzvah. I look around, all I see is mishpucha everywhere. Now, mazel tov, thank you. I, and and, and it's, uh, it's really an honor to, to be invited back to speak. I don't do as much of this as I used to, uh, back when I probably had one of these in my hand more often than I actually had my TV remote. Um, and I don't know, uh, so, so those of you who, who, uh, who I've not had the pleasure of meeting and, and haven't heard me speak before, I just wanted to say I, you heard my, that I am presently at uh, a full-time employee of Collegium Pharmaceuticals. Um, I've spent the last seven or eight years in industry, uh, first with a urine drug testing company and then um, with, with two pharmaceutical companies. I left, I'm a pain psychologist by background, and I spent 25 years in the clinics of some major hospital, Sloan Kettering, Vanderbilt, University of Kentucky, where I, I, I uh, was part of a team taking care of cancer patients with pain and, and chronic pain patients with non-cancer pain. And so, I, I, and I left because I, I sort of wanted to be part of an effort to try to bring some safer pain products uh, uh, forward and, and uh, have been, spent the last few years doing that. Um, and even though it's been about seven years since I saw a patient, um, and by the way, for those of you who ultimately are going to retire from the clinic, I, I do want to tell you that after about three years, you stop waking up screaming in the middle of the night. So there's hope. So, um, but uh, no, all kidding aside, I do miss taking care of patients. And I've thought a lot about um, the opioid epidemic and, and, and the factors that led to it and, and what it's taught us about our healthcare system. And in fact, I've been writing a book endlessly, and it will probably ultimately get um, published posthumously. Um, uh, but I've been working on a book trying to really talk about how complex a phenomenon it is, and it's really rewarding to hear at a meeting like this that, uh, that, that a lot of people are wrestling with it and trying to move on from it and, and trying to still do the best job they can for people with pain. Um, and I'm a bit of a fossil, I'll admit. Um, and last year, uh, to prove it to you, for those of you who didn't hear my talk last year, I was actually up here um, defending pain as the fifth vital sign, which every commentator on TV will tell you is the worst thing that ever happened, was a creation solely of industry, etc. Absolutely untrue, of course. But, the, but, but really, what I was trying to say then was communicating about pain is not a bad thing asking people about their pain and then setting about doing something about it is not a bad thing rather than driving it underground. It's, an, it's a worthwhile concept to recognize that people's suffering can often go unnoticed unless you take the time and interest to ask them about it. Um, I think where that concept, like so many other concepts that really came about, came from really wise, really seasoned, that means gray hair, clinicians from back then, um, really really went astray when they got linked too closely to how much opioid a person got. So pain as a fifth vital sign was very well-intentioned. I still think we need to be regularly asking about pain. Of course, it was a little naive, even before it got tied to opioids too directly, it's a little naive to think that if you try to do a pain assessment for everyone in the healthcare system, that you'll be do, able to do anything but the, the most rudimentary pain assessment you could possibly do. And of course, that has come to look really bad through the retrospectoscope, right, uh, of the idea of zero to 10 and, 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 and all that. Now, the zero to 10 should have been the beginning of a discussion, not a short circuit to a treatment. Right, And so it went wrong, and then it really went wrong when it got tied to patient satisfaction and to how much opioid a person got and to reimbursement and all that. But I don't have to tell the people in this room who regularly ask people about pain that asking about pain is important. I also defended last year the notion of pseudo-addiction. Another concept that is, I mean, people spit it out on television every commentator you see, and it doesn't matter if they're on a lefty channel or on a righty channel, everybody blames pseudo-addiction as the most nefarious thing they ever heard. That actually addicted people were convinced, doctors were convinced they were pseudo-addicted and convinced them to give more opioid. Now, pseudo-addiction, the idea that people who are suffering, who are not well-treated, will act in ways that are uncharacteristic of them at other times, out of desperation, that is 
beyond a truism, and every one of you in this room has seen it. So the idea that iatrogenically, we can sometimes make people suffer and desperate in our healthcare system is, is, is a truism. Again, another concept goes awry, though, when it's taught too linked to opioids. So the idea is if the person is acting that way, more opioid will, will, will get them back on the straight and narrow. Of course that's not true. And in fact, Ken Kirsch and Lynn Webster and I wrote a paper some years back about what's, how pseudo-addiction should have been taught to begin with. So it should have been taught that any misbehavior with opioids, no matter what drives it, right, even if, it's, if it is untreated pain, should still be maybe you double down your efforts to relieve the pain, but you also address the behavior. You don't, I, you don't come up with the idea that the behavior itself will, will rectify itself simply because someone's been given some more opioid. And that was very naive and, again, went wrong because a, a worthwhile, self-effacing, important concept got applied and tied too di directly to opioids. So then I'm sitting at home before I'm getting ready to come here, and I'm listening to yet another talking head and they are talking down about undertreatment. And they're basically talking about undertreatment. Now, it's funny that I object to this coming from talking heads on my television. It's funny that I object because actually I was always a big critic of the notion of undertreatment. Because the idea of undertreatment means that if we just do more of something, we're going to do a better job with pain. And obviously, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. And so I objected, though, because they were up there kind of, so you know how we, there's this big criticism that conditions and diseases are all invented because there's a pill for them somewhere. Overactive bladder syndrome has a pill, so it's a syndrome. Some people take it as far as talking about depression that way. Restless leg syndrome, got a treatment, we got a condition. You know, in other words, putting the cart before the horse. These people were talking about undertreated pain was a figment of someone's imagination to make people use more opioids. And of course, undertreatment is a problem, but it is a problem when it's only applied to the amount of opioid, right? That the idea that if someone's undertreated, giving them more opioid will help them. That's, again, has that, that simplistic notion has done a lot of harm to, 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 in certain circumstances. And then I, th I sat down and I started to write something for this book, which is getting written in fits and starts. I wanted to read to you, and this, by the way, this is, this, every, this is present company accepted, because you guys are all, you wouldn't be at a meeting like this if you weren't trying. And you weren't, you weren't trying to fill gaps that exist in the healthcare system that pain experts and others who are trying were meant to fill. And so I wrote, pain is poorly treated. It's inexpertly treated. It is clumsily, callously, thoughtlessly, and non-strategically treated. I'm big on adjectives. And yes, it's undertreated. But then a light bulb went on in my head. And I realized, and I don't know if any of you have ever had this thought, undertreatment is not just a discussion we need to have about opioids. Pain is undertreated in every way you can think of, whether it's sub-therapeutic doses that get applied of any drug you can think of, sub-therapeutic intensity of the therapies, like you can, or a sub-adequate number of psychotherapy sessions get approved, or a sub-adequate um, amount of treatments of physical therapy get approved. How do we give physical therapy when someone's had a terrible injury in our society? We give people physical therapy until their improvement plateaus, which is great if you're approaching a patient who's got sort of an acute injury and you're only talking about their acute management. But if they have chronic pain, how about physical therapy and other programs that help them maintain, at least maintain the plateau rather than sink back down? So that's sub, there's undertreatment and underutilization of physical therapy. There's underutilization of monitoring tools like how many urine drug tests you can order on a person a year if you want to carefully manage them. So undertreatment exists. Sometimes undertreatment just applies to like the amount of empathy we show these people in our healthcare system. We could use, we could do with a little bit more caring and a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more attention and a little bit more skill and inclination to learn what we don't know and, and fill those gaps. 
but we're on such a fast track putting everything on a conveyor belt, especially something as common as chronic pain, that you know what the, the predictable results happen. And I've been a critic of this for a very long time now. And here, you, you, those of you can see the slides and the app and whatever, you know the learning objectives for today. I started, I've started every talk in the last 25 years that I've given with this slide. We have been going back and forth on opioids. We never once did what Doug Gourlay said we should do, which is turn everybody who does any kind of use of any kind of controlled substances into a talented amateur in addiction medicine. That instead of saying, okay, yeah, we'll do a lot of opioids, or okay, we won't do any opioids, we needed to do opioids guided by a knowledge of addiction medicine. So that people that need a lot of structure and a lot of recovery support and a lot of monitoring and certain kinds of formulations, et cetera, get it. And that talented amateur would not only know how to structure that treatment, they would know what to do if it started to go south, and they would also know what to do if they needed to end it and stop that treatment. And Doug, I, I, I only steal from the best, Doug, and I've stole that phrase from you so many times. And, you know, where are we now? We're, we're probably, you know, as far towards opiophobia as we have ever been. But I'm not here to talk about opioids today, and I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about what else is a casualty? What did we learn from the opioid epidemic? What did we learn for trying to do everything as cheaply and quickly as possible when we are dealing with complex syndromes that have major motivational, psychological, lifestyle, and other components, and we insist on doing that as cheaply and quickly as possible. Because I think, as a person who spent 33, 34 years around opioids, and worked with some experts who I saw do them very well, I don't think they're inherently incredibly worthless and dangerous to everybody. But I have to admit, after watching this phenomenon for this long, that they can be dangerous in our healthcare system, given the perverse incentives of our healthcare system. And the premise of what I've been writing about is that opioids exposed every crack we have in our, in our healthcare system. They, they, they uncovered how badly we tailor things to match chronicity, which is truly ironic given the fact that we've converted almost everything under the sun, including cancer, into chronic illnesses. Rather than give more psych to help with chronic, we, we give a few sessions of psych and then we back away from it. Or the physical therapy example I gave earlier, that we don't help people maintain the gains that they've made from when they're at their low point. We don't do things like that. We don't, we're, not, we, we're not particularly tailored to managing the chronicity, and chronicity burns us all out, mostly. We, um, we don't do so well. The Achilles heel of every pain situation that I've ever worked in was always the mental health piece. And in some respects, and, and, and when I say this in front of a room full of mental health professionals, they all gasp. I actually think that if we were doing care right in many, many illnesses, the primary person taking care of the patient might, would, would probably be the mental health person. The person who takes the time to know them as a human being, knows their motivations, knows their lifestyle, knows their psychiatric problems, and is working on fixing and attending to those. And the person who's going to stick a needle in the back or the person who's going to aim at the tumor with the radiation ought to consult to the person who's treating the patient rather than the opposite the other way around. But, of course, there's not enough trained mental health people to do anything like that. But it, and, but, and it probably wouldn't work. But the point I'm trying to make is that we, we, don't, we don't address the motivational and psychiatric issues very well. And what I'm going to talk about as, a, as we move through this today is pain is not unique that way. We don't do it in hypertension, GERD. We don't, we don't do it in depression even. I actually wanted, um, before when I was planning this talk, I told Deb I, I, I kind of wanted to talk about wonder drugs and what happens when we promote things to the status of wonder drug, which means the drug will do all the work. Where do, where do we end up a few years later? And as I have on a slide later, but it's always on a continuum of somewhere between like bewilderment and catastrophe, right? I mean, because drugs don't fill all those gaps and they don't do it well. And what I'm really going to focus on today is the third thing, the care coordination thing. And I've said this many times over the years. When I was at Vanderbilt, I had 25 to, th I'm a psychologist. 
I had 25 to 30 patients scheduled a day. I was triple booked every single hour through the day because if I had no-shows, I couldn't make my RVUs. You guys know what RVUs are, right? Relative value units. So I'm over there seeing people with cancer and life-threatening illness and pain and substance abuse, and I'm getting the same amount of points as like, one of my colleagues in the community who's like seeing co-eds with boy trouble. So I've got to see the same number of people in the same amount of time. And I used to say to the administrators at Vanderbilt, if you give me 10 patients a day, I'll do a really good job. But beyond that, every five people you add to my schedule, I lose 10 IQ points. And so by the end of the day, if you want someone with a 70 IQ seeing your patients, have at it, right? Uh, borderline retarded mental ability by 5 o'clock, I'm, I'm happy to do my best. And the truth of the matter is, I, I, don't, I really kind of wonder why, I mean, the, really the only people that have totally pushed back against that have been the people that do that sort of, what do they call it, concierge care or whatever, where you know, you're on, they only have a certain number of people on retainer and they do a really good job for those few rich people, right? But why don't we push back more? Why don't we say, I can't, I'm, not, I'm a pretty smart guy, I'm pretty good at what I do, but I can't do the same job with two and three times the number of people. I don't care how many extenders you give me. Can't do the same job. And care is uncoordinated. So if I was inundated, I was also trying to communicate my findings back to primary care doctors that had twice as many patients as I did scheduled in the day. I wrote really good notes. I tried to use that EMR, man. I, I was a whiz at that. I, I tried to resist actually typing my note while the patient was actually sitting in front of me. But um, because it was always tempting because I always had a waiting room full of people. But... You know, the EMR isn't going to make up for lousy care coordination because I was being facetious. Every EMR note, in my experience, was exactly the same note. It didn't actually even say anything about the patient. It was like, here's a note. I'm trying to make my lawyer and, um, and the people that do the billing happy. You know, so here's all the proof that I did what I said I did kind of thing. I mean, remember the days of flip charts and writing actual notes? I used to work with a psychiatrist who I loved covering for her when she was away. Her name was Marguerite Letterberg. She actually studied with, with, uh, with Yalom. She was a group therapy whiz and just a terrific, terrific psychiatrist. And, and I would love reading her notes because before I saw her patients, those people were people to me. And I actually kind of knew who I was about to what. That is such a lost art. As we don't write notes for each other, we write notes for lawyers. We write notes for, for billing people these days. And, uh, and then, of course, there was the greatest note I ever read in the history of my clinical career. Uh, I've told the story before, but I, I got called to the breast cancer inpatient um, floor at Sloan Kettering one time um, by a doc who never called psych consults. So I was nervous, right? It's like, I, I got to get to the nursing station, really study the chart. I need to know what's going on here. And I read the chart, and I'm looking for the reason for referral, and I'm trying to figure it out. And I get to, you know, I'm flipping, right? Remember those charts, flipping these papers? And I get to the page, and there's a note, and I recognize his, hand, his handwriting. It was scrawled in big letters across the entire page, call Dr. Pasek, this patient is a Freudian picnic. Not exactly a very professional note, but I at least knew he was pissed, you know. <laughs> the point is, there are so many moving parts to do a better job with pain. The PT, the psych, the recovery support, the whatever el elements are needed in there, the, the, the interventions, the medicine, and to think that the primary way that we're going to deliver that in an empathic and helpful way to people and help them get beyond just a couple of 30% improvement in anything is an eight-minute visit once a month with a non-expert. I mean, that's, that became the predominant way people got opioids. It's also probably largely the predominant way most people get treated for pain. And, and, you know, and Mike Chapman has written and talked a lot about this. A lot of us have. And, and you know, it's just... We need to do a better job of care coordination, and that's what I'm going to talk about today, because I think opioids really exposed how hard it is for us to put together a multimodal plan and get it to work and have somebody be the hub of the wheel and, and make sure that all the spokes are reporting back in. 
The other things, of course, ongoing risk assessment. One of the things that opioids exposed is that, you know, if, if we can get people to do a risk assessment once, it's hard to get them to do it repeatedly. And the, and, and, and the risk for misuse of controlled substances in a lot of patients is not static. It changes with their stress level. It changes with all kinds of things. So when you're t taking care of somebody who's got a chronic problem with chronic pain, their risk needs to be constantly reassessed. We, just, we, we, we certainly didn't make any great strides in getting that done either. And then, of course, poor people don't get the same pain treatment as rich people, not on a societal basis. Poor people don't get radiofrequency ablations and, you know, all kinds of fancy treatment. Poor people get, or got, short, you know, large, large amounts of short-acting IR opioids, generic, the, ch the cheapest, most abused drugs that we have. And, that, and, and of course, with, with, you know, and it's not to say that poor people don't deserve what, better and don't deserve whatever therapy is thought to be in their best interest at any time. But if it was going to be short-acting, highly divertible opioids, those patients needed to be watched. And I don't think that we did a very good job of that either. So, but here's, so I've, I've mentioned those things to you all before. Here's another thing, though, that I think that's happened. So as I walk around, even a meeting as wonderful as Pain Week, where it doesn't matter how tough things get outside of here, every time I come to Pain Week, I, my morale goes up a little bit. Maybe it's the artwork, it's the respect for, the, for how hard it is to do this work that these people uh, who organize this meeting show and all that. But there's, there's one thing that is, that's clear. You know, I came to a determination that I don't really think that we learned anything all that, all that basic, really, about opioids in all of that time. I think we learned a lot about what our health system is good and bad at. But it sure seems like that, that's one of the ways in which I'm a bit of a fossil. I think the, 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 the narrative has moved past that, um, past where I'm at. And um, what I think is happening now is that we're now pitting pharmacologic and, and other medical interventions against non-medical and behavioral and other interventions. Like it's an either or now. So unfortunately, the opioid epidemic exposed all the problems in coordination, and it's led us to a place now where we're, 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 not, we're, we're really not striving for integration anymore. Now, I certainly understand the idea of having a decision tree that starts with therapies that are less toxic and less potentially harmful first and, and going up the ladder. And one of the worst mistakes in the whole opioid movement was to kind of put opioids in the number one slot on the decision tree for everybody. That was a big mistake. But people don't remember necessarily that. That was during the time when palliative care was coming up and people were actually concerned, wanted to do a good job of taking uh, of, of, of people suffering and, 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 and also really noticing, you know, the, the NSAID problems and people with spontaneous bleeds and, and all that, people actually thought of them as potentially safer than they, in, in fact, proved to be. But at this point now, you know, so that was a mistake. There's no question that that was a mistake. But it's kind of like an either-or, where we're kind of saying that we don't need to strive for integration. We're going to do all these other things first, or only. And I think we need to really, we, we need to kind of recreate a definition, a definition of coordinated care. And we need to say that that's what we really we, we want. We want a, a very highly individualized and well-orchestrated combination of therapies for people with pain. Whether it's non-opioids, interventions, exercise therapy, you name it. We, can't, we don't have the money, even if, you know, obviously what I'm, gonna, what I'm proposing here and all the other speakers that are talking about multimodal therapy are proposing is a much more expensive model of taking care of pain patients than we've been willing to fork over in our healthcare system. There's no question about that. But we all, you know, I, we all have to recognize too that not everybody can get the kitchen sink, right? So it has to be a little bit more selective than that. And pain, again, is not unique. You know, I, I did an addictions fellowship and then when I was working for, for Millennium uh, Urine Drug Testing, I found myself um, in, uh, interacting with addiction professionals again, 
um, and hadn't in a long time. And actually, you know, for me, one of the most heartbreaking experiences I had when I came back and I saw, of course, there had been a major advance in that time, buprenorphine treatment and all that. But there was so little movement on the sort of differential therapeutics. In other words, like who gets what, when, you know, in what order. In, in a, I find this to be actually in some respects in addiction medicine still a bit of a mess. And when I talk to my addiction colleagues, they say, say, say something similar. I mean, you know, if you go to a lot of addiction medicine programs and you ask them, what's your, you know, what do you offer? And a lot of them, for example, might be drug-free only um, approaches. And you ask them, how come you don't do medication-assisted treatment? And they say, we don't believe in it. And I'm thinking to myself, it's the tooth fairy? What do you mean you don't believe in it? There's data out there. It's not something you believe or don't believe. But more often than not, the way in which a lot of addiction treatment proceeds is you go to a, a program that was opened by a person in recovery and you get what got that person into recovery. And there's been, I, to my observation, very little like concrete progress, data-driven progress to help people find their way to the, to the right treatment in the right order. Um, and pain is very much like that. Because it's so uncoordinated, you come, if you come in, you go to an, an, an anesthesia-based pain clinic, you're highly likely to get anesthesia-based interventions. If you go to somebody that does medication management, you can probably get medication. If you go to a complementary treatment, you're going to learn how to meditate and do psychotherapy, and you're going and, and to do that sort of thing. And if you go anywhere, you're going to get CBD. No, I'm kidding. Um, um, don't get me started on that whole thing. Um, I shouldn't get myself started on that whole thing. Um, the point I'm trying to make is it's so uncoordinated and there's very, very little systematic like, okay, let's do a triage at any of these places and get the person to a, 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 a program of treatments and combinations of treatments in a particular order. And... Um, as I say, pain is not unique, but it's really costly where pain is concerned. Because one of the big problems of sort of doing it in the wrong order, as every psychologist in this room will tell you, and those who are psych psychologist-y, non-psychologists, is that, you know, and I'll, I have a slide on this coming up, like doing serial drug trials, which are often necessary, can engender a massive amount of passivity can engender a massive amount of waiting around for something external to me to help me. And, and then you've got this psychological spiral going that can be quite problematic and hard to get back from. So I'm not saying that those serial drug trials are not necessary or important, but they, we have to be communicating to people and also giving them the other things to at least make sure they don't slip in those kinds of ways. And what are we trying to do? We're, we're trying to combine these therapies in a way so that the person's pain and associated difficulties allow, are, are managed or treated as well as possible to allow them to meet the actual goal of pain therapy. And the actual goal of pain therapy has really very little to do with driving down a pain score. It's one dimension you know, many, many years ago with Herman Weinreb, I wrote about the four A's. It looks so like, you remember the four A's, right? I and mean, I had my 15 minutes of fame. That paper put my daughter through college. Um, analgesia, now let's see if I can remember them. Adverse, adverse effects or side effects. Um, activities of daily living, function, and aberrant drug-related behavior. And people look at that now and they go, God, that was like weird and, and naive. They don't realize that Herman and I were trying to get people to pay attention to the other three domains because they were busy just asking zero to 10 back then. But the goal of pain therapy actually is not just a simple reduction of a pain score. It's to help the person live a full, meaningful, and rewarding life that's not overly inhibited by their pain and their related complications. And to do that, you absolutely have to address the motivational and psychological issues. There's just no question whether they were primary or whether or not they came about because we instilled it in them by the way we approached their care or they just kind of learned it through the ether as they were trying to navigate their way through 
an uncoordinated kind of an approach. You know, when people get to you people, they get a coordinated assessment. You know, you see them, other members of your team see them, you kind of come up with a, you, you know, you paint a Mona Lisa for them. That's actually one of the reasons why I think I used to get so mad when we would say, look, you need your pain medicine, but you also need psychotherapy, you need family counseling, you need physical therapy, you need, we, we, you know, you need all of these things, and the person only showed up on the day to get their medicine renewed, and first of all, it didn't feel like good faith to me, but the other part of it was that it's like, don't you realize that like, I don't paint or sing or write music, that your treatment plan was how I express my creativity? You just painted a mustache on my Mona Lisa for you, you know? And, and I think, I think we, you get mad, you know, you get when that happens. But how many of us really, I mean, I'm a psychologist and I didn't learn that much about how to move, how to move unmotivated people to motivation. I learned, you know, I learned behavioral therapy. I learned psychoanalytic and psychodynamic therapy. I didn't learn that much about, you know, in fact, if anything, two direct approaches to move a person from point A to point B were frowned upon as a kind of therapist of my generation. Of course, I, I thought I wanted to be a psychoanalyst, but I, had a, I basically had to give that up because I knew I couldn't keep my mouth shut that long. <laughs> but like, you know, I used to joke, I used to talk to my friends who were physicians, who were non-psychiatric non physicians, and say, like, what, what, how did you spend your psych rotations when you were coming up? How, what did you learn? You know, and a lot of them, more and more nowadays, they spend... Uh, they spend a little bit of time on addiction recovery and addiction recovery units and things like that, and that's good, given the kind of problems that addictions of all kinds, whether to food or drugs, uh, have become. But most of them spend like a month in an inpatient psych unit. It's like 1% of the population has schizophrenia. We make sure all of our doctors cycle through an inpatient psych unit. Like, I used to say, if God forbid I ever ran a residency program, and that would be a really bad thing. But if I ever ran a residency program, my idea of a psych rotation is I would take those young doctors and I would go down to a used car lot and I would have them watch a master of moving unmotivated people from point A to point B. And you know why I would do that? Because that's what they're going to spend the rest of their career doing. It doesn't matter if they're treating high blood pressure or it doesn't matter what they're treating. They're going to spend most of their time taking people who are pre-contemplative, right, or pre-contemplative or whatever, and trying to move them to readiness and to change. And that's what they're going to spend their time doing. And very few of us, as you know, are prepared in, in our training to do that. And again, pain is not alone. I want to talk to you a little bit about some examples from the world of hypertension, from gastroesophageal reflux disease, from the treatment of depression, and then come back to pain, about how, what happens when we rely too much on drugs and we don't spend time addressing the motivational and lifestyle components. See, because I like to think of it as a series of gauges. If you do your multi multimodal assessment when the patient first comes in, not just the mental health person, but the mental health person, the rehab physician or, or, or physical therapist, the doctor, the nurse, all of us put our two cents in. And then we say, okay, what is preventing this person from having a fuller and more meaningful life? Maybe it's their lack of preparedness to make a vocational change. Maybe it's their, their, their weight, their fatigue level, their, their loss of hope. It, it could be a million things. Pain intensity is only one gauge, is only one of those dials. And so we give a drug, we give a, an opioid, a non-opioid, it doesn't matter what it is, to lower the pain intensity, admittedly, a modest amount in most cases. It doesn't matter, again, if it's opioids or anything else. 30 to 50% is considered a pretty good bump for a lot of people. You lower the volume on that, but you don't address those other gauges. How do we expect the person to move? You know, it used to be like the old days, we, we talked to people like, you know, if we give you a little bit of uh, opioid for your pain, we expect you to turn around tomorrow and turn into an art collector. You know, it doesn't happen if there are other barriers. So it depends on how intense is their pain or other, their primary syndrome to begin with. How many secondary psychological and motivational issues did they pile up over time? How out of control or how much un, has, their, has their lifestyle unraveled in the face? How long does it take nowadays for people to come see people like you in this room? 
and, and you know, dealing with pain for six to 12 months, what kind of condition are they in by the time they come in? And then you gotta ask yourself, how much, how much impact does a medication really have? It's often rather modest. What's a typical level, level of efficacy? If you're gonna get 30 to 50%, and we've all seen this, especially those of you who are non-mental health, who don't work in multimodal clinics and are out there in private practice who do an intervention and get a person 50% relief, and that person, because that was the only dial that was set on the wrong setting, that person is functional again. And sometimes it's people with a lot of, a lot of resources who just need a little bit, one of the most, prof little bit of pushing. I, I once said to a patient, patient I shared with Russ Portnoy, a guy with horrible neuropathic pain, and he was getting a little bit of relief from his pain, and he came in to see me because he was really, really stuck, and he was kind of a can-do guy, and he was an avid golfer. And, you know, this is going to sound like so not profound in front of a room full of people like, like all of you, but he came in, and he was telling me, like, he can't ever golf again because by the time he's halfway through the thing, his pain from walking around and carrying things or even when he's riding the cart is so bad that he, you know, he's, he's, he's terrible, and it's not worth it to get laid up the way he got laid up every time he tried to play his old 18 or, God forbid, 36 holes or whatever he would play. And I said to him, okay, you're on doctor's orders. Tomorrow I want you to go out and play nine holes, period. Do not play another hole. And it's like, a, you know, sort of like a, it, it sounds so not profound, but I was basically sort of expressing confidence in him, telling him to give up his all or nothing thinking, telling him, you know, that, it, that he could still enjoy something that he used to enjoy and he didn't have to think about it in those terms. I mean, it's so, it's banal, I know. But that was all it took to get this guy unstuck because he had the resources to do it otherwise. And so you have to address how people are thinking about and how, what, what kinds of other ways of thinking did they pile up before they were able to get a little bit of relief? And, and what could he do with his typical amount of improvement? He could return to that, and he was able to do that. But we've also seen our patients, and some of the most bewildered, most suicidal sometimes, most um, um, just confused patients I ever saw were the patients who did get really, really free access to opioids back in the day. And people titrated them to high amounts and to no effect, and brought them up, brought them down, switched them to another one, combinations of therapies. And, and they were given, you know, no, no one ever really didn't, want, didn't you know, held back. And they still couldn't function. Those were often some of the most beat up patients I would ever see because they, they were crushed by the idea that they weren't, that something from without was not going to, give them a little bit more, you know, more relief than they were, they were getting. And so these were people with the th same, very same 30% relief. You know, we love to talk about how this, all kinds of people with all kinds of subjective pain reports have all kinds of different scans. But the other thing about people that's also true is one person's 30% is something they will kiss your ring for, and the other person's 30% is a reason for them to tell you why they could never get their lives back on track. And, you know, I always find that the patients who are, you know, patients talk a lot about, no one takes my pain seriously. They don't, the, and yet, they don't take their own pain seriously enough sometimes because they're not willing to change their life to accommodate it. If someone said to them, listen, you have a heart condition, you have to change the way you eat and do some of these other things, a lot of people would do it. But when you tell them you have pain and so you can't play the 18 holes, you're going to lay yourself up for, for a couple of weeks, they, they continue to try to do it and lay themselves up until they give it up entirely. They're not, taking, they're not actually paying attention to the fact that they have a serious illness that they have to bend their life and adapt to. So we, there's no question in our conveyor belt approach to things as complicated as chronic pain that we tend to try to use the medications to fill in all those other gaps. And so we put people on, a short, you know, on the typical way in which we do it, and then, as I said earlier, we end up a few years later, we have some successes, but we also have a lot of bewildered people. Look at, that, look at how people talk about antidepressants now compared to the way they used to talk about antidepressants. Prozac was a wonder drug in 1987. And actually, it kind of was. But now, you, you know, fast forward 22 years and look how we talk about them. Overprescribed, not necessary, don't really do that good of a job because we wanted the drugs to do everything, and I'll say more about that in a minute. And, and but you have to ask yourself, you know, some of these drugs do very, very well in clinical trials. 
But what kind of patients go to, are, are in clinical trials? You guys have probably sat around in your offices and had you know, a CRO come to you and say, we're running a trial for a particular company. Do you have any people that might fit the criteria? And I'm sure you instantly look, think, you know, go through your, your mental Rolodex and you pick your craziest people, your most uncooperative, least motivated people to put them on a trial, right? Of course not. You, you pick the people that are likely to be able to follow the directions and people who are motivated and people who are likely to try. Well, does that change the way drugs perform in trials? How often have you seen a clinical trial where they actually assess people's motivational level as part of what they were getting? Whether, again, whether it was opioids, non-opioids, or even a hypertension measure. So here's an example of such a study. In hypertension, and I love this study, a few years back, they had a, some new, I think it was a, some kind of ACE inhibitor or ARC or, I don't know, they, they, you know, every field has their own initials for everything. It was some new uh, antihypertensive agent. And they did do a cross tabs of who got the active drug and who got the placebo. And then they looked at their adherence and their motivational level. So which group did the best? That's well, fairly obvious. The people that were adherent to active drug did the best. They had the, the best control of their blood pressure and they did the best all the way around on all the various parameters in the study. But who did second best? Was it the people who were partially adherent to the active drug? Or the people who were sort of mostly non-adherent to the active drug? Well, at least they got some active drug. No, the next best group were the people that were adherent to the placebo. So what, is it, what, are the, what, what are the cousins? Is that just a placebo effect? Or are people who are adherent already in a different place mentally, a different place motivationally? Are they making lifestyle changes? Did they stop smoking, eat better, lose weight, start exercising, God knows what, to give them better outcomes? And, and there actually is a vast international experience with multimodal therapy for hypertensives where you don't just give them a drug in an eight-minute visit once a month by a non-expert and say, hey, stop smoking, you know, or even a four-minute intervention, stop smoking, stop doing the other things. They actually have rehabilitation programs and multimodal programs with dietitians and personal trainers, etc. and the patients who get that do better, not surprisingly. Can the average internist sort of fashion that in their, in their practice? It's hard with hypertension. And it's arguable that some people, that hypertension responds better to medication-only therapy than probably pain does, right? How about GERD? So the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors, are wonder drugs. Any of you ever take them? They're awesome. When I had my shoulder surgery, I was laid up. I gained a lot of weight. I, I, was, I was eating poorly. I was depressed. I couldn't exercise. I couldn't sleep worth anything, and I started having to take them all the time. And they work. They work really, really well. They relieve your heartburn. Have they proved to be the kind of benefit that the world had hoped they would be with regard to like Barrett's esophagus and all of that business and esophageal cancer? No, they have not. Because people take them and they don't make the behavioral and motivational changes. Like how else do you treat GERD? Eat less fat, drink less caffeine, eat less al alcohol, have less fun, put cinder blocks under your pillow, right? There's all kinds of things you can do to treat GERD that involve lifestyle change. So this was an editorial in the New York Times, which I thought was awesome. Um, it was a gastroenterologist talking about how they don't have time to counsel a person how to make one lifestyle change that would stop their GERD more than any, more than any other. And what is that? The kitchen is closed at 7.30 p.m. You don't eat after 7.30 p.m., you will not have GERD. And this, this uh, gastroenterologist, this um, uh, uh, lady in New York, wrote this wonderful piece about how she has got all these crazy type A personalities who work late, go out after working until 9 o'clock at night, go start drinking at 9 o'clock at night, eat dinner at 9.30 at night, and, and, you know, and, and gain weight and, and have horrible GERD. She didn't have the time or the skill to teach them how to change and reorganize their work and their lifestyle so that they could stop eating at 7.30 at night. That's our healthcare system. Let's just, the drug will relieve the symptoms and actually the long-term repercussions. And by the way, any of you ever take these drugs for a long time? Like opioids are not the only drugs on earth that are hard to come off of. 
You stop a PPI, you will have such bad rebound reflux. I had to call Jeff Fudin and ask him what, how to get off of those medicines. So, you know, what would coordinated care look like? Maybe, maybe somebody like this needs a coach. Maybe they need a psychologist. Maybe they need a nutritionist. You know, maybe, maybe they need family counseling to change those kinds of behaviors. It might be, it might be any of a number of things. Do we routinely offer that? No. And now you can just go to the store and put yourself on PPIs, of course, and, you know, with, with the kind of pr predictable results of more obesity, more bad eating habits, etc. Depression. So I always point out this one particular study about depression. It's been mired in debates about what's better, meds or psychotherapy, for years. And I'm really disappointed in my psychologist brethren over the years that they even got into that fight. I mean, if somebody has five out of eight symptoms for two weeks most of the time and has the neurovegetative symptoms and has the syndrome, why should we argue about whether or not people get those medications? They're still going to need a rehabilitative approach, right? They're still going to need somebody that's going to help them with changing their lifestyle. And indeed, there was a study that was done at the NIH, NIMH, a number of years ago that looked at people that participated in antidepressant trials, and they singled out the people that had the best relief of their index episode of depression. In other words, they came in with symptoms of depression, and they got better. And then they looked at them six months later, and those people were not better vocationally, socially, and in all kinds of other domains of their life. Why should they be? In fact, imagine, you're, you know, imagine you go three to six months neglecting your life. How about you just don't answer your email for six months? And then you get a medicine, you start to feel a little bit better. As complicated as life is today, what kind of a hole would you have dug for yourself by six months of not attending to your life, right? And who's helping you with that? Your symptoms of depression are better, and maybe that will turn down the dial enough on your loss of hope and, your, and all those other kinds of things to make you care, and your apathy to make you care enough. But the hole you have dug is profound by that time. And, and, and the psychologist, my brethren, should never have been fighting that fight. They should have been said, that's great. We'll come in when they start, right from the beginning, or even just when they get better, to help them put the pieces of their life back together. We don't do that. We want medication only approaches. And maybe that's why suicidality tends to peak in partially recovered depressives, because they, they pick their head up and they realize how, how, at what kind of a loss they are. And I did a study a few years ago. Remember when people actually cared about prescribing antidepressants? And by people, I mean payers. Some of them are people. I'm kidding. But there was a time when these drugs were all proprietary drugs and they were costing the plans a lot of money and they cared a lot about the overprescribing of them. And so I did a, a chart review study with a colleague of mine of patients being treated in primary care. And as you know, to qualify for a diagnosis of depression, you have to have five out of eight symptoms most of the time for two weeks minimum, right? And it has to be characteristic of how you are most days, almost every day, most of the day, right? And we looked in those charts, and how many symptoms do you, what do you think the mean number of symptoms or the modal number of symptoms we documented in primary care charts of people on SSRIs was? Uno. And you know what it was? Sad mood at the time of the encounter. Now, come on. I, lived, I, I worked in New York City. If you didn't get a parking space, you were in a bad mood at the time of the encounter. And, it's, and probably that's the least reliable symptom of depression out of all of them. What's the most reliable symptom of depression? Uh, what do you find? I, I know what I found to be useful when I, when I was seeing pain patients um, in a medically ill population of people. You have a sense of what it is? British, the British have done some research on this. It's like, it's anhedonia, right? The inability to feel pleasure. When you think about it, you could have cancer. There are people who have, are at, at the end of their life, and they are still able to feel pleasure so much that they can sit on the porch while they're dying, you know, holding their loved one's hand, watching a sunset, and feel exhilarated, right? So, so you're, it's, we're not talking about how often you're happy. We're just talking about whether or not you can feel happy, right? And so there's nothing about being sick necessarily that would undermine your ability to feel that. But this is not just mincing words. 
when you, when you um, have a diagnosis that's based on one of the less, least reliable symptoms and only one symptom, you know, the DSM is largely built up around what's likely to respond to certain kinds of therapy. And so if you don't have the syndrome, you're not likely to have a response to the medication. And so now we have sloppy diagnosis and we have sloppy treatment and it's medication-only treatment and those, the person who's, who's receiving it isn't even likely to benefit. So coming back to pain, I've been referring a lot to these two separate cycles. This terrible cycle while a person waits the 6 to 12 months it takes to get in to see some of you or before they take their pain seriously enough to be moved to come to you, or whatever the case may be. This psychological cycle of increasing pain perception, increasing anger, anxiety, social isolation, depression, hopelessness, on, and inactivity and passivity on one side, and on the other side, deconditioning and worsening pain, and so on and so forth. And all of that is cycling while we're like Nero, fiddling while Rome burns, doing serial drug trials. Not, a, not at least trying to stop that cycle from taking place while we do what we have to do? You know, Dennis Turk did a review several years ago. Sorry, and I'm going to wrap it up here in a minute. Dennis Turk did a review several years ago where he basically looked at the literature of all the various things we offer people in pain in isolation. And there was good news and bad news. What do you want to hear first? Reminds me of that joke, you know, the doctor calls the patient and says, um, Mr. Smith, I have good news and bad news. What would you like to hear first? And he says, um, tell me the bad news. Oh, he says, I've, sorry, I've, ba- I've bad news and worse news. All right, tell me the bad news. You have two days to live. He goes, that's the bad news? What could possibly be worse? I forgot to call you yesterday. So, I don't usually do that. I usually make snide remarks, but I don't usually tell a joke joke. Um, So Dennis Turk did this thing, and there was good news and there was bad news. The good news, every single thing we do to people for pain works. The bad news, everything we do to people doesn't work. And the difference, a motivated person who takes responsibility for their own recovery. Because when, you're, when you start from that vantage, if you don't start from there, you're going to have bad results. If you start from there, you're going to have a person who you could give 30% pain relief, and that gauge will go down, and they're going to be willing to sort of take that to the bank. And, you know, I don't care what you're talking about. Non-opioids, opioids, anesthetic intervention, psychological approaches. It, well, on a good day, we give people 30 to 50% relief on average. That's basically what we offer people. And we're offering it to people sometimes without that other motivational assessment. And so are we bewildered when, you know, we go through it and we have to do, all, and we have to treat, some of our, some of our medications have an, a numbers needed to treat of 11. And then when people don't respond, we say you're opioid-seeking or drug-seeking or, or whatever. I mean, it's more likely that they won't respond than they will respond by orders of magnitude. And so I think we have to be really, really careful when we're running through our gamut. I wish we went through our gamut in, in, a, in an order that was more empirically driven, that made sense, that wasn't just you get, you know, I, I'm an interventionalist, so I'm going to give you an intervention. I'm a, med, I'm a psychologist, I'm going to do psychotherapy. I'm a shoemaker, I'm going to make you shoes, right? If it, I wish the order was more logical and more data-driven. But anyway, we got to go through our iterations often. And there are reasonable things for different pain syndromes, of course. But someone's got to keep an eye on what's happening while we're doing that so that the person is not get into this passive mode of waiting around for something to work from without them and take over. So, and this is really the heart of what I've been talking about the whole time. What determines the person that's going to get better with that 50, 30 to 50% relief? And is the care, are we offering people care that's coordinated enough to make sure that when those other gauges are off that we're paying attention to them? And with opioids, 
the, the, the need for coordinated care is even better. When I said earlier that I didn't have this fundamental belief that they're horrible and dangerous to everybody, but I do believe they can be extraordinarily dangerous in our healthcare system at times because of the perverse incentives and uncoordinated care, I'm talking about when you have a person who's got a, every red flag in the book for potential misuse of drugs and you can't go up the ladder and offer them pain treatment with opioids, with recovery support, with psychotherapy, with urine drug testing, with all the things that they need. If you can't put that together, you can't manage the harms to that subset of people. I've been talking about this till I'm blue in the face. And it's, it's a talk for, an, it's, a, it's an argument, a discussion for another time. Why couldn't we, after 25, 30 years of increased opioid use in this country, why were we never able to raise the standard of care? Why did the vast majority of Americans get their opioids in large amounts with non-experts in eight minutes once a month with no psych and no monitoring? Why did that become the, the, the universal precautions approach that Haidt and Gourlay put together years ago? A lot of people, the people in this room took that to heart and started to implement it, but as a society, it, we were never really fully able, in my view, to raise the standard of care all the way up. And so with opioids, it's, it's, it only magnifies the issue, not to mention the fact that the opioids can lower testosterone and, and, and they can cause other kinds of problems that actually might make the person more passive and more, and, 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 and you know, and, and unravel further if not, if not combined with the right other treatments as, as we all well know by now. You know, what I don't like though, when I talk about being a little more strategic about all this is that you hear about people that we're on opioids for six to 12 months or two years or three years and they, and, and they sort of were working and they were kind of getting their life back together or whatever they were doing and then they were able to give them up either voluntarily or you know the other kind of voluntarily um, and then they actually find that they feel okay and then the sort of in the, through the retrospectoscope we say well that person never needed those opioids or never should have had them how about like understanding the difference between a patient who gets a strategic use of, or a strategic exposure for a while, uh, just enough to give them a turn down on that dial enough to engage in the other things that they need, or to feel some hope, and have that then drive them forward from that point on. But we, we, we have to do this, and again, I'm, I, I think at the end of the day, I don't think, despite all the negativity, that, that we will get away from opioids entirely, and we have to use them better than we, than we have. And there are many, many barriers. And here, here's the limitations of the medical model. Coverage for doing everything I'm talking about. The lack of time. The lack of and shortage of mental health professionals. The irrelevance of the typical psych training to the task, as I've mentioned. The un and what about even the unconscious messages that we send our patients? Do we communicate to people that they're victims and that they should be passive? Are we able to, without saying it, convey things like that? And I love this study. This study comes from, the, the, from a Danish researcher. Like, aren't the Danes always happy? Aren't they like the happiest people on the planet? The Danes can't even do this right. They did a, th you, everybody knows what kinesophobia is, right? The fear of movement. They, they looked at some physical therapy professionals there and they had them fill out a kinesophobia scale, the professionals. And then they had the patients do it. And those two were highly correlated. The patients who were working with physical therapists that had high scores for kinesophobia had high kinesophobia. Like, are we transmitting these things unknowingly to people? How about when we come in exhausted, starving, like, we, we didn't eat a nutritious meal. We've got the powdered sugar on our face from the donut we scarfed down in between patients. Irritable, not able to sit still, not able to focus. What messages are we sending people about self-care when we let ourselves get burned out and chew, chewed up and spit out the way we do? So even the unconscious, I think, is playing a bit of a role in all this. But at the end, I think we have to truly embrace the biopsychosocial model. Put accurate diagnosis at the, at the start of care. Put motivation at the center of care. Don't pit various treatments against each other. Let's move the differential therapeutics forward and come up with treatment plans that make sense for individuals. And let's also be aware of our unconscious biases. I started off, and I'm going to end here, but I started off talking about undertreatment. And I told you I don't like undertreatment because... I think the idea of undertreatment, at least when it was applied, overly applied to opioids, it, and, and just it suggested 
in the old way of thinking about it, that we needed to do more of something to make pain patients better. I think we have to do more of everything. We have to offer, we have to be, we need better diagnosis, better treatment, better drugs, better tools. And sometimes out in the world in our present company accepted, we even have to be better people. And by better people, I mean like we meet every single person with a commitment to do everything we can for them, from our heart to our guts, everything that we have to offer them as if they were a family member and a valued, a valued person that we cared about. Because you know very, very well that that person in front of you is that to somebody else. Thank you very much for your attention. Um, we're a little over, but I will answer a question or two. There's no talk coming up in here now, as far as I understand. Any questions, comments? Sir. Yep. Yeah. 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 So that's a that's a obviously that's a great point. Um, the point's been made that um, that that you know it sort of goes to the issue of is someone dispositionally optimistic or disp dispositionally pessimistic or just what do they expect? What what have they been led to expect in terms of how much relief maybe will come from without versus how much they have to take the bull by the horns themselves? and all of that kind of thing. And I, 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 think, that's, I think that goes, I, I was, you made the point better than I did, but I think I was talking to that when I was talking about um, engendering passivity, that when we do that, we're really setting up expectations that someone else is going to do the job for you. Very good point. Yes? Hi, uh, I, I just wanted to have you address the role of health systems and how we can improve. I, I work in the VA, I do provide primary care for women veterans, and one of the things that we did in my clinic was to start a monthly one-hour session where uh, the three providers in my clinic all got together with our nurses, the psychologist, the pharmacist, the uh, dietitian, and the social worker, and said, okay, who are our highest risk people, and, and talked about them. Mm -hmm. And um, over time, we've seen some improvements in people who have stabilized, who've been able to get those uh, resources. So it, it just, but that's with protected time. Yeah. Um, and are there other settings in which something like that has been done? So Mike Chapman left um, early. He had another meeting. He told me not to be offended, but. I'll be offended anyway. It's, it's my baseline mental state. So, but, but, you know, Mike Chapman works in a, one of these centers of excellence where they really, really do do a very, very tightly coordinated job of that. And they do these, there are, there are many examples. Stanford's an example. Dartmouth was an example. Um, the Boston pain care people are an example. But what you're describing is both what it takes to try to coordinate care and make sure that everyone's on the same page and that there are not holes for a person to slip through and call up in the middle of the night and get an extra prescription and do all kinds of other untoward things and, and all that sort of thing, but also about how it's not reimbursed. Um, no one gets paid for that staff conference, right? And, and, and yet it's essential. It's also essential that you get together and empathize about that some of them are, you know, difficult yeah, yeah, exactly. Share the share the share the wealth, right? And 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 so that's really it's really important. But I, you know, I I, I put it in my mind that I wasn't going to spend an hour um, ragging on the payers today. But you know, at the end of the day, if we continue to not want to pay people to take care of pain patients and reimburse the cognitive activity, the emotional activity, the coordination time, and all of that with the kind of value that it has for society. And we think that the answer to drug addiction and misuse and all kinds of problems in the pain population everything is just to use less opioids. Um, that's not the answer. The answer is more coordinated care that's done at a higher level. And I think... You know, we have, to do the, we have to do the studies, and sometimes we do do the studies, and we take them to the payers, and we say, hey, listen, we want, you know, we want this multimodal care. Um, we want this 
particular model of, of, of uh, containing high-risk in opioid therapy care for our clinic or whatever the case may be, and we want it reimbursed. And here's the data that when we do this, it actually works. I, I get really sort of, you know, t you know, the amount of time that you spend doing a good assessment and supporting your teammates and doing all of that is super important, and you don't get paid a penny for it. I mean, it's, it's all about how we package up and deliver and pay for health care. And it's got to change. Anybody else? Sir. Well, what you're saying is we need to figure out how we're going to package and pay for health care. And that's exactly what the uh, HHS Interdisciplinary Task Force said. I think every single point they made was more education, which is not happening in our medical schools. Right. And the payers have got to pay for this. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and you know... You know, I, I look at that and I think um, when the government, you know, that, that whole thing was paid for by CARA, you know, and I look at that, and Mike and Mike DeGeorge and I worked together, and we were asked to report back to the company on, on the report, and we read it, and we were like, wow, this is, like, fairly reasonable, right? And, and, and we looked at that, and, you know, and I think about the origins of that. It was paid for by the addiction money, and I think they got more than they bargained for. I think they thought they were going to get the last document that was finally going to put the last nail in the coffin of opioid therapy. And instead, they got like a primer on what is wrong in the healthcare system when it comes to treating pain with opioids or without opioids, but also with the implication that some people are still going to need opioids, you know? And um, I thought it was an inherently, an extraordinarily reasonable document in many, many ways. And you're right, you know, interestingly, I had an occasion to talk with our CEO about it, and he goes, how come every guideline we have that comes out ends up sort of looking like a pain textbook? You know, and he's right in a way. And, 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 and I think the answer is that we, again, it goes back to that differential therapeutics. Like, we don't know how to say for this pain syndrome, for this person with high motivation, low motivation, comorbid depression, you know, check the boxes, administer the following therapies in the following order. You know, we just don't, we, we haven't reached that level of sophistication. And so everything looks like, every guideline looks like a textbook. Any guidelines in it? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. They were, they, they were very supportive of some particular drugs, though. <laughs> they, were, they were that. Anybody else? Well, thank you for the opportunity to feel like my old self for an hour. I appreciate it. <laughs>